Good morning. Actually, maybe I should just say morning. Some of you may not have decided yet if it's good. I know that we don't come to these things planning to sleep, and yet we still struggle when we don't, right? I tell you what, though, how many of you are coffee drinkers? You probably don't need a second cup after watching Sandy. (laughs) I'm tired. She's up here, she's down there, she's up here, she's over there. I was like, I'm plumb worn out. She would be the energizer bunny in the morning, I think. Some of you weren't with us last night. We'll just catch you up briefly. Last night, we looked at three scenes of the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapters, chapters two, three, and four. And we recognized how we, like Nebuchadnezzar, naturally seek glory for ourselves. But then we saw God's pursuit of a pagan king of Nebuchadnezzar and how God graciously and mercifully repeatedly gave Nebuchadnezzar a glimpse of himself in the fiery furnace um, through Daniel's ability to relay and interpret the dream. And repeatedly we have Nebuchadnezzar responding with, wow, what a God. But he continued to seek his own glory. He's strutting on the, the rooftop of the palace, right? Saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built by the power of my own hands? And God let him go graze in a field for about seven years like a cow. And then his reason returned to him. And he had that rare opportunity that we rarely see it in scripture, an instance of a non-Jewish king being the narrator for his own story. And our challenge last night was simply recognize this about ourselves, ask God to show it to us, and then to pursue glimpsing the glory of God. And we're gonna continue to build on that through our two sessions today. Let's pray and we'll jump into this one. Good morning, Lord, thank you for a new day. Thank you so much for the privilege to worship you together with this amazing group of ladies. Help us during this time. Guide my thoughts and words. May our hearts be receptive. May your spirit have freedom to work. And may we honor and glorify you during this hour together. In your name, amen. Sorry, I have a frog in my throat and he is crossing his legs. The phrase glorify God or give God glory is something you've heard your whole life if you've grown up in the church and hearing the word of God. But what does it actually mean? In one of my lectures this week, I ask a class that, how would you articulate this? How would you define this? And there was a good bit of silence. We kind of know the idea, but actually putting it into words can be difficult for us. So I want to start this morning by by defining it for us. In our English Bibles, we find glory and glorify both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament is a word that means heavy, 
or weighty. And it carries the idea of something that is impressive or worthy of respect and admiration. There's something weighty or heavy about this thing or this person that demands respect and admiration. The New Testament word, the Greek word doxa, is linked to a word that means to have an opinion and it's positive in its form. So it's to have a good opinion And then over usage, over time, it came to include the idea of shining the light on something. You might think of to make it big, to make it look good. And our working definition today is going to be to shine the light on that which is worthy of respect or admiration to shine the light. So if we are going to glorify God, we are going to shine the light on him because he is worthy of respect and admiration. If God is, as we said last night, the one true object of glory, then what is it about him that is heavy and weighty and worthy of our respect and admiration? Look with me at Exodus 33, and there's a narrative here that answers that question for us. In Exodus 33, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel have gotten tired of waiting, and so they have demanded that Aaron build them the golden calf. They all donate their jewelry, and he makes the golden calf. God God lets Moses know, hey, there's something going on down there. Moses goes back, and God is angry. And God at that time says, I'm not going to go with you to the promised land, because if I do, I might just destroy you. So instead, I'm going to send my angel to lead you. The people mourn over this. And so Moses intercedes and goes back and pleads with God, and God says, okay, I'll go with you. And in Exodus 33, verse 11, we have a phrase, a statement that is a description of the relationship between Moses and God. And Exodus 33, 11 says, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Love that. There's a description there of a level of intimacy, openness, transparency, and communication. But look down at verse 13. Moses desires something more. And Moses says in verse 13, now therefore I pray if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you. He's already got this amazing friendship of communication with God. And he says, you know what? There's more, there's more. And I wanna see more of you. And then down in verse 18, he very specifically says, Please show me your glory. How does God answer? In verse 19, God says, okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And then he goes on to begin to describe himself. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then he goes on to say, but you know what? When I do that, when I pass by you, you can't see my face. It would be more than you could handle. And so I'm going to kind of tuck you into the little cleft of a rock and I'm going to metaphorically use my hand to shield you. So there was an indication there of splendor and radiance as God would pass by. 
There we have the light part of our definition. Now you drop down to chapter 34, and here's where it happens. So before God's saying, this is what I'm going to do, and then in chapter 34, he does it. Look at verse five. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him, so this is when he tucks him into the rock and metaphorically covers, shields him with his hand and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So how does God respond to Moses' request to see God's glory. We have here in this narrative two pieces. We have a visible demonstration, the radiance that was so bright that Moses couldn't look at it. And then we have a verbal description. And in that verbal description of glory, what does God describe? He describes his own nature. So what is, what is the basis of this glory? What is weighty or heavy about God that demands our respect and our admiration? It is his nature. It is what he is like. We see this same truth in Isaiah 6, familiar story where Isaiah had a vision and in the Bible says he saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the glory of the Lord filled it, right? And then the seraphim proclaim, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. There's a declaration there of the nature, the character of God. And then they say in Isaiah 6, the whole earth is full of his. Now if you connect that with holy, 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 and you didn't know what was to come, you might think it was gonna say the whole earth is full of his holiness. So what's happening here? Isaiah is equating holiness with God's glory. So God's glory is his nature. The full encompassing character of God is his glory. And you know, when I, when I understand that and you understand that, I have no business trying to claim glory for myself. Because when I do that, I am deceived about who I am and I am functioning as if I in some way possess that radiance and splendor of the nature of God. So God alone is the one true object of glory. How is this glory displayed? We've seen in the narratives that we've looked at briefly this morning that first of all, God proclaimed his own glory. And then we've seen in Isaiah 6 that the angels declared his glory. But we also find in scripture a variety of objects that God chose throughout history to display his glory. Now, there's probably a dozen or so in this room that have been students of mine in expositional teaching, so I'm gonna talk to them for a minute. This is not what I teach you, where you take one nice, neat, tidy paragraph and you unpack it and you exegete it and you exposit it. 
we're going to get the aerial view of God's glory. And the reason for that is I've been hanging out in this topic for about a year and a half, and I had like 50 pages of notes, and then I had the task of compressing it into three messages. And I feel like sometimes there's a topic that is just too big for that. And I think it's important that in trying to understand what the glory of God is, that we do the helicopter view and that we, we trace it through scripture. So we're going to trace through scripture what are the things, what are the vessels that God has used throughout history to display his glory. First of all, the public display of God's glory began with creation. Psalm 8.1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 97.6, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Have you experienced this? My happy place is the beach. And I don't mean Lake Michigan or Lake whatever. <laughs> don't, even, don't even offend me by calling that the beach, okay? I grew up in the Southeast and the beach is the Atlantic with the white sand and miles of it, right? And I, there's no place I would rather be than walking on the white sand of the Atlantic or Guam or Hawaii. We could just let our minds go here for a while, right? <laughs> and it, I enjoy the sand and I enjoy the water, but what it does for me is it's like, wow, God. When you, when you consider the tides and you consider all the little critters and creatures that wash up or that your son catches on the line, it's overwhelming because it's an indication and a demonstration of who God is. And when I am in a moment of despair over whatever circumstance in my life I wouldn't choose, if I can worship God in nature, I am reminded that, oh, the God who made all of this, who controls the tides, who keeps the stars hanging up there, who brings about the seasons year after year, that same God is my God. And you know what? If he can control all of that, I think he's got this little problem that I'm fretting over. So creation displays the glory of God. John Piper says, he shouts, he, God, he shouts with clouds. He shouts with blue expanse. He shouts with gold on the horizons. He shouts with galaxies and stars. He is shouting, I am glorious. In addition to creation displaying his glory, God has chosen just common objects to display his glory. Think with me. One of the first ones we see in scripture is a burning bush. So Moses is out in the wilderness and he's working out there and he's been there for about 40 years after he fled Egypt. 
And one day he's taking care of his herds and he sees a bush on fire. Now I doubt that that was unusual. A forest fire, a wilderness fire. But what was unusual was the bush was burning and it wasn't being consumed. And he scratches his head and he says, I think I'm gonna step over here and check this out. And as he draws near, God says, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. And then God speaks to him and conveys, communicates his will for Moses to Moses. So God used a very ordinary object, a burning bush to show his glory. Another object he used was Moses' face. You know the stories of when Moses would meet with God and then he would come out and the Bible says his face shone so much that he had to put a veil over it because the people couldn't stand to look at it. The radiance and splendor of his face. In the same narrative of the children of Israel, we find God's glory resting on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, it says, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. God's glory appeared as a cloud and a pillar of fire to lead the Israelites. Just common objects that God chose. I'm gonna show you a little bit of myself through this. I'm gonna show you a little bit of my radiance, a little bit of my splendor. And often paired with that brilliant splendor was God speaking about who he was, his nature. In addition to creation and in addition to common objects, the glory of the Lord was seen in the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, 34, that whole chapter, God is giving instructions about them erecting the temple, the tabernacle and what was to be in it and how things were to be handled. And then in verse 34, it says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Similarly, the glory of the Lord was displayed through the temple. The priests have brought the Ark of the Covenant back in 1 Kings 8, and they've put it in the temple, and then scripture says, and the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, so bright that the priest couldn't minister. And Solomon goes on to call it God's dwelling place. The presence of God was there. So we have a bush, we have a man's face, we have a pillar of fire, we have a cloud, a tabernacle, a temple, we have creation, all vessels that God chose to display his glory. They're all marred vessels, all contaminated by sin, all imperfect. And then we find that God's use of these various vessels ended when Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory depart from the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10, God was fed up with their idolatry and he removed his glory from their presence. That's the last time you read of the glory of God in the Old Testament. When does the glory of God appear again? Class. Any takers? Jesus. Every Christmas, our family sits around and muddles our way through a recitation of Luke chapter 2. 
And it becomes kind of funny. Dean is the only one allowed to have a Bible. So people kind of come in and out of the whole recitation. But when we get to verse eight and nine, we, we get it, right? And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and what? The glory of the Lord shone round about them. The glory of the Lord has been gone since God removed it from the temple. And now it reappears, coinciding with the birth of Jesus Christ. So now God is going to display his glory on earth through his own son, Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of his character, grace, and truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 starts out by saying, God at sundry times has spoken by his Son, and then we have a description of his Son. He is described here as the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Jesus Christ was the perfect representation of God's glory. The first one since the creation, which was then marred. So we've had all of these imperfect manifestations of his glory and then Jesus Christ comes and we see his glory. He's once again revealing it to man but what happened after his ascension? Do we no longer have the glory of God revealed through a vessel on earth? Turn with me to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, John is recording a prayer of Jesus to his father immediately preceding the betrayal, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. And in John 17, verse four, John says, or Jesus says in this prayer, I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I think we see there a glimpse, an illustration of how one glorifies God. How did he glorify God in this verse? By finishing the work that God gave him to do. Then he says in verse six, I have manifested, similar word there, it's a, it's a, a clear, visible expression of something. So I have made visible your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now look down at verse 10. He's speaking here of believers, and all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. See this theme of glory running through this prayer? Now drop down to verse 22. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, listen to this part, 
and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Verse 22 said, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Verse 23 tells us why, that the world may know. What's he saying? He is saying that following the ascension of Jesus Christ, believers are God's chosen vessel to make clear, to manifest, to display his glory here on earth. That's a humbling thought because Jesus did it perfectly and I never will. It's also a great honor. As a believer, you and I have been chosen. We've been given the responsibility to put on display, to put on public display the character and radiance of God. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts and indwelt believers, we became the dwelling place of God. And God has commissioned us to put that on display. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 talk about my body being the temple of the Holy, Holy Spirit. How does that passage end? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, in light of that, do what? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You and I are that chosen vessel right now. It's your greatest calling. No matter what other responsibilities, tasks, privileges you have, this is your greatest calling. That in all of that, you are putting on public display the nature of God. God intends for us to think, to speak, to act, and to react in a way that puts his glory on display in a way that portrays who he is. You might be familiar with what we call the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God, right? So the communicable attributes of God are those characteristics of God that he shares with us because we are made in the image of God. Now to some degree, all of God's creation shows forth his glory. That's what Psalm 8 says in Psalm 19. But as a human being, he has chosen you to display his glory in a, in a far deeper and greater way than any other being or object can. Practically, um, we said last night, this looks like asking God moment by moment in every situation, Lord, how do I glorify you right now? And ladies, there will be circumstances in your life that are not of your choosing when you simply don't know what to do. Perhaps it's a difficult relationship. Perhaps it's grief. 
Perhaps it's a broken marriage, it's infertility, it's a difficult child, it's a wayward child. And emotions in these situations run deep and high. And sometimes we have all kinds of ideas of how to react. But in that moment, I need to ask God for wisdom and say, God, how do I glorify you in this moment? How do I accurately portray your character in how I respond to this? You might um, encounter interactions in relationships in which you are wounded and your natural response is to lash out, to hurt back, to defend yourself. But again, I need to ask the question, what glorifies God in this moment? How do I show God's steadfast love to this person who just told me off? How do I, at the store, display the nature of God by how I interact with the rude teenager at the checkout counter? I just want to set him straight and give him a piece of my mind. I want to tell him the customer comes first. But I have an opportunity to display the character of God. Your life is filled with decisions, hard decisions. They might be financial. They might have to do with a job or a church or a relationship. And so often we, we navigate decisions by what we want and what we feel or by fear of man. And again, I need to be saying, okay, God, what glorifies you in this moment? And how do I know that? I know that from the word. What does God say about that? What principles guide this process, this reaction, this, this decision? I have um, some dear loved ones who have walked away from the Lord. That is the heartache of my life. And I'm a go get her, fix it kind of person. I want to take the bull by the horns and, you know, let's beat this to death and fix it. And God has been teaching me that the spiritual condition of that loved one is not just about them and God, but it's about God and me. Because it's about what God is trying to shape in me as I go through this journey with them. And that has given me emotional stability when I'm grieving, when I'm agonizing over what I'm seeing. And I can take a step back and say, okay, God, you are God. And God, I'm, I'm entrusting that soul to you, but what is it you're trying to shape in me? In other words, how do I respond to this last conversation? How do I respond to this last decision in a way that shines the light on who you are? How do I show gospel love in a way that glorifies you? Gospel love that, that loves this person but doesn't contradict my love for God. And I have to ask that question day by day, situation after situation. Lord, how do I, how do I respond to this? And understand that God is shaping me. God is not just shaping them. And I don't want it, right? I want your trial, please, and thank you. I don't want mine. 
And yet I firmly believe that God knows what to put in every one of our lives to drive us in dependence to him and to shape us and to teach us how to live lives to his glory. When I was raising my children, we have four children, four grandchildren. They're all a thousand miles away. But two of their families have come in the past two weeks. It's been a party. Um, but when, when, I was, when we were raising our children, I think that my mindset was, well, how do we glorify God as a family? Obviously, we glorify God by all, all my little ducks lining up and quacking correctly and living for Jesus and loving Jesus. And so we have glorified God as a family when they're all wholeheartedly living for Jesus. And I remember reading a book by Elise Fitzpatrick, one of her older books, in which she says, what if, what if God can receive more glory out of your life, mom, by having you parent a wayward child? (laughs) That is not the plan. But God used that to challenge my thinking. Because you know what? When life is good and hunky-dory and everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's easy to say, praise Jesus. But when life is hard, when there is grief and sorrow and heartache and sickness and death and sin, the true colors of your faith are revealed. And who I'm really living for shows. So if I get up in front of you and I say, love Jesus, he's awesome. And you're saying, yeah, but what have you lived through? And so as I navigate my heartache, it's an opportunity for the sincerity of my faith that 1 Peter 1 talks about. Though it be tried by fire to be to the praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in whatever you're facing, recognizing that God is giving you an opportunity to display his glory and then asking him, Father, what does this look like? In addition to asking, how can I glorify God in this moment? I think another part of practicing putting God's glory on display is when we redirect praise to God. I remember um, in ministry doing special music or speaking or teaching and someone would come up and thank you for it, tell you what they appreciated about it. And I remember thinking, what do I say? If I say thank you, it sounds like I'm accepting praise for myself. But I kind of felt like saying, praise the Lord. Just was a little pious in a negative way. And I had to wrestle through that and realize, you know what? I need to sincerely say, praise the Lord. Or say, I'm so thankful that God encouraged your heart with that. So what are things that people commend you for in which you need to redirect the focus to God. It's a, it's a habit to develop, it's a practice to learn. We see this modeled in scripture in our last narrative about Daniel in chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar said, are you able to make it known? What did Daniel say? We pointed it out last night, nope. 
No man can do that, but there is a God who, and he went into talking about God. How about in Acts chapter three, Peter heals a lame man in the temple. People are amazed and start following him. And he says, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intensely at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus Christ and he gives the gospel. What did he do? He was praised by man and he redirected it to God. Another example is in Acts 14. Paul heals a crippled man in Lystra. And in verse 11, the people start yelling, the gods have come down, the gods have come down. And they gave them names of gods and they brought animals to sacrifice. And in verse 14, we find Paul's response. He said, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless idols to serve the living God who made heaven and earth and he gives the gospel. What is he, what are all these models of? They're of people redirecting praise. The only time I'm gonna do that is when I deal with my heart on a daily basis about wanting praise and I ask God, God, throughout this day, help me to seek your glory in every instance and situation and help me if and when there is commendation or praise to redirect it to you. There's one more example of this in 1 Chronicles 16. I'm gonna ask you to turn there with me as we close. 1 Chronicles 16. King Saul has died, finally. <laughs> Do you know that David waited, I think it was seven years after he was anointed king to actually become king. Much of that time he's hiding and fleeing for his life. So King Saul has died in chapter 10. David is finally anointed king in chapter 11. And David finds himself with many opportunities to grab glory for himself. In chapter 11, verse nine, I'm, I'm backing up. We will get to, did I tell you 16? We'll get to 16. I have to give you the context, okay? So in chapter 11, verse nine, we're told that David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. 11.15, he had loyal followers. That's the story where three, he, was, he said, I'm thirsty, and three of his mighty men go in to the enemy camp and get water, and he realizes they are willing to sacrifice their life for me. In chapter 12, verse 22, we're told his army became great. Verse 38, they were all of a single mind to make him king, there's unity. In chapter 14, verse 17, the fame of David went out over all the lands and the Lord brought the fear of him upon the nations. So you hear all these great things that are happening in David's life and good reasons for him to say, hmm, yeah, finally, been waiting a long time for this. But what does he do in chapter 16? He wrote a praise song at a time when he could have been basking in the favor of men and in his accomplishments, he redirects the focus to God. What does he say in verse eight? First Chronicles 16, eight. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds. Drop down to 10. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Look at verse 12. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. Look at verse 14. 
He is the Lord our God. Look at verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Look at verse 24. Declare his glory among the nations. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. Look down to verse 28. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering, come before him, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And it continues through this chapter. This is a beautiful illustration of a man who, humanly speaking, had a lot of reason to be patting himself on the back. Finally, finally. All God's promises have come true. I'm a pretty popular dude here. God is making me great. People love me. But what does he do? He redirects all of the favor of men to God. To glorify God is to shine the light on his nature. And we've looked at all through history, through creation, through common objects, through the tabernacle, through the temple, through Jesus Christ, and then finally through believers. He is putting his nature his splendor on display. This is your greatest calling, the greatest calling of your life. And every, every other aspect of your life should be an avenue through which to do this. Your job, your ministry, your relationships, your, tri your trials, all of, all of these are avenues, opportunities to display his glory. How are we doing with this calling? Can we just ask the Lord, Lord, how am I doing? What am I putting on display? My flesh? What I want? Or am I putting on display who you are? Whose glory are you seeking to put on display, your own or God's? Psalm 29.2 says, give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Let's pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive and powerful. And God, we bow before you and we worship you and we praise you and acknowledge that you are the only one worthy of our glory. In your name, amen.